This is an ABC podcast. Gillian Bell was trained as a social worker and she did that work for many years. But Gillian always loved baking, even when she was a little kid growing up in an English working class family. Even though treats were few and far between in the family home, there was always some flour, some milk, sugar and butter. And now Gillian Bell has perhaps the best baking job in the whole world, making special wedding cakes for clients all over the planet. But rather than just pop the cake in the mail and hope for the best, Gillian will actually go there. She will go to Scotland or Japan or New Zealand and make the cake right there the night before the wedding from special ingredients that are meaningful to the couple. In her kitchen, raspberries, chilli, chocolates all come together and bring to life specific moments from the couple's childhood and their family stories. And she mixes them all together and then bakes them into a single wedding cake. Hi, Gillian. Hello, Richard. I'd like to get started with the cake you made in Scotland in 2018. You were called to the wedding in Scotland. Where was this wedding supposed to take place? Well, the wedding was going to take place in Ayrshire, on the west, sort of western side of Scotland, south of Glasgow, on the coast. And it was actually at Auchinleck Estate, which was James Boswell's estate. You went to the bride's childhood home. What do you remember of going there? What was the area like? It was right on the coast. In the distance, you could see the Isle of Arran. It was blustery and windy, chilly and blowy there on that part. And I wanted to see where she'd grown up and I wanted to just walk where she had walked and just to feel the air and to see what grew there. Anyway, I was very kindly invited by her mum into their, her childhood home and she showed me her bedroom and I went to the window and looked out because I thought to myself, this young woman, ever since she was a little girl, she would have got up in the morning and looked out at this window. What does she see? What memories does she have? And I, I noticed her window faced towards the sea and I noticed there's very thick hedgerows of dog roses and Scotch briar roses and eglantine, which grow in great thickets in the coastal sand dunes. What are dog roses? I've never heard of them. They're the sort of stuff of fairy stories, Richard. They're, they're the sort of ones where if you get caught in a thicket of them, you're likely to perish. It's a very, it's a wild rose and it's very simple, a single rose, but it's highly perfumed and uh, absolutely brutish. You know, they make blackberry brambles look quite tame. Um, so they've got these sort of thorns and Birds and wildlife often hide in the thickets of them because it's such a safe hiding place. But the whole coastline along there is uh, full of seaweeds and lichens and these dog roses. So I just felt, even if she wasn't aware of it, the smell of the salty air and the smell of dog roses would be a smell from her childhood. And so I felt I must have dog roses. I must somehow capture the perfume of dog roses in her cake. And how did you collect the dog roses? Well, I got up very, very early on the morning and borrowed some sort of secateurs and I rugged up as much as I could to protect myself from the thickets and I took a little basket and just went down very early at first light and sort of 
sort of almost threw myself into this thicket. <laughs> I had to, uh, I, and I got stung. Luckily, I'm not allergic to bee stings, so I got stung so many times that morning because the bees just love them. Of course, they're completely attractive to bees, and of course, we were all vying for the dog roses. So. It was a mission. I'm always on a mission for an ingredient. And once you've collected them, how did you use them on the cake? Well, in that one, because I want to sort of capture flowers and plants and botanicals like that as as aromatics in the cake as much as decoration. So what I did for a start is I'll use them to perfume the sugars in the cake. So I put petals in with sugars and I steeped the flowers in uh, creams and put it with the butters. So I'm layering all the time the flavours through the cake. How wonderful. That sounds amazing. Yeah, yes. So I have, you know, quite often, you know, all these little pots and jars and things in the morning sun, you know, getting all the oils out of the beautiful plants and leaves and petals and allowing them to infuse the ingredients. So how did you then get fresh raspberries for this cake? Well, the bride's name was Iona, which is a beautiful ancient Scottish name. And one of the things that I thought I would do as part of the wedding cake, so the cake's in many tiers, was to create one of the tiers to be based on the traditional Scottish dessert, Cranachan, which contains oats and whiskey and raspberries and cream. So I have thought I need whiskey and I want these raspberries. Now, Scottish raspberries are renowned. And I thought I want to find the best wild raspberries. And so I just happened by chance, and this is so much of these adventures and missions that it's serendipity so often, I happened to bump into someone, a restaurateur in Edinburgh, who happened to have uh, a team of foragers who supported the restaurant and found them uh, ingredients and special herbs and wild-picked ingredients. And I asked them, where, where would I find the best raspberries in Scotland? Well, they had a, like a, a little raspberry network. And, <laughs> and so the word went out that uh, Gillian from Australia, the baker from Australia is after the, our best raspberries. So they were being picked for me the day before. And that evening... I drove from Ayrshire into Edinburgh, which was the sort of rallying point where all the all the raspberries and all the little bits and sweet Sicily herbs and eglantine and all the bits and pieces I wanted for this cake came via these foragers, then drove back to Ayrshire to prepare to make the cake. The crack team of raspberry foragers had done their work. <laughs> but yes, and it's magical. And then sometimes people say to me, you do know you can get them down the shop, don't you? And I think, oh, no, it's not the same. I, I'm always struck about the import of these occasions in people's lives, this, their stories, how they've come to this place, this point in their lives that two people decide that they want to lay down their lives to each other to to share dreams and move forward together and to me it's 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 a, a story of human hope and optimism 
and the occasion is worthy of the effort. And when I make that cake, it's unique to them. And it will never be, that cake will never be made again. You know, even if you repeated the recipe, it would never be the same in that year of that harvest on that day. So I was thinking initially that what you're creating is a kind of a cake biography, but it's not really. There's two stories and you're blending them into one. Is that it? Yes, in a way, because there's um, the two people in the in the marriage and, and, and they both bring their own stories and own unique memories. So I try to capture something that's maybe even shared that they as a couple have shared, uh, but also something that's unique to say the bride or the groom or the groom and the groom. And just so that it's so personal to them, it's so unique to them. And I don't know what I'm going to cook them. I don't know what I'm going to bake them until I meet them. And I usually only meet them a couple of days before the wedding. And I just need to spend time with them and chat to them and sort of almost walk in their shoes and uh, visit places like the bride's childhood home. To, and then I almost feel it. I, as I walk, I, I sort of create the recipe in my head. I have a feeling then for what I'm, I'm going to do. What does baking do to your senses? How does it make you feel? Oh, Richard, it's, it's, for me, it's just a wonderful feeling. And it's, it's all my senses. And I think that's what's really beautiful about baking. It's, it's not just the taste and the look, but the sound of baking and the smell of baking. So I, it's like I'm in a sensory heaven, a sensory rich environment. And we don't often get the chance to do that. We, I mean, our world is becoming more and more visually oriented, you know, that so much weight is put on how things look. But quite often, you know, I'll, I make the cake, or 99% of it by hand. I rarely use anything mechanical because of the sound. You know, I just hang out with the ingredients. There's a bit of a magic trick to it as well, isn't there? Insofar as, you know, if you cook something on the, on the, in a pan or a pot, you watch it change. But when you bake, you put this unformed thing into the oven and then yes. abracadabra, you pull out something that's completely different. Absolutely. And sometimes it doesn't work out. <laughs> and sometimes you think to yourself, my goodness, what, what I've did everything. But, but that, again, is it's just part of this sort of ephemeral nature of it. And uh, it's not factory produced. You're a human. And I'm a great believer in even the mood you're in when you're baking will affect the outcome. I'm, I'm, very, I'm very mindful of that when I'm making people's wedding cakes. When do you start to bake the cake? When do you start this process for a wedding? Well, the sort of process of gathering together the ingredients once I've We've settled, I've settled on what it is I'm going to make and create um, will happen sort of one or two days before. But I don't actually start making the wedding cake until the clock strikes 12. So I'm actually on the, their wedding day and that's when I start. That's a bit magical in itself. The clock strikes midnight mm, and you get yes. to work. How important is the sense of smell to the process of it, the, the aroma that uh, changes as, as the baking process takes place? I'm a great believer in, in sort of using your senses to, to know when it's ready or when the cake, how the cake is going, how it smells even in its batter form. 
the smell of the butter. I mean, Richard, even f- different flour from around the world in different seasons smells different. It feels different. Butter is so different. And then, you know, you put it into an oven. And I suppose because I've spent so much time in front of ovens and in kitchens, I, I can sense when a cake is ready to come out of the oven. It starts to change. You even can hear some cakes. They talk to you. <laughs> and, um, but when you first smell it and you think, oh, there's a cake in the oven, it's almost done. And no, it's not. It, it, it's starting to tell you, hello, I'm here. But it's not ready yet. But once it sort of almost fills the whole house, it's almost like it just takes over the room, the smell of it, then you know it's ready to come out of the oven. And do you associate this aroma with your childhood? Yes, I, I do. I think that's part, perhaps part of the comfort. I mean, I grew up in a very large family, Richard, and it was at a time when, you know, one couldn't buy um, sort of much processed food or pre-made food in the shop, so everything was sort of made. And, and I suppose growing up in England too, it was a lots of baking and, and cooking of uh, hot meals. But this baking itself, apart from sort of meat pies and um, things like that, big family-sized meat pies that my mother would make, there wasn't a lot of treats made in terms of cakes or tarts or slices or things like that because my mother was just so busy with children and dad working and I really wanted those cakes that I read about in storybooks and uh, you know I used to cover those so I, I worked out pretty early on that if I was, there was going to be treats like that in the house I had to make them somebody had to make them and I was keen so I was baking before I ever went to school. So this is you grew up in a working class family in, in, in England in an era when when savoury food, to be perfectly honest, in England wasn't too crash hot, but the puddings were great, though, weren't they? The puddings. puddings. Oh my God, the puddings. Yes, both my parents uh, were wartime children, Great Depression children. My father went off to war. Uh, my mother was um, a bit young uh, to sort of help in the war, the war movement, but she was evacuated out of London. They're both Londoners. I always think when I see that film, The Lun, The Witch and the Wardrobe, and the children being evacuated to the country with their gas masks. Well, that was my mother's experience. So even twins that came after me in the family, we were still on rations in London um, when I was a child. So what was a special treat for you as a kid then? Well, everything was seasonal. So our treat every summer, we'd have one pint of strawberries and a little tub of Cornish clotted cream. And that would be our treat, our summer treat, because, you know, they only came at one time of the year and that's all we could afford. So I can remember, you know, we'd be given one little strawberry each and then a a teaspoon of this clotted cream. And my father loved fishing and, and had connections with uh, fishermen in Cornwall. So they would send a little tin of this clotted cream by post. It would all be wrapped up in brown paper. That generation that your parents belonged to, working class people, they were often traumatised by the Depression. How thrifty could your dad be? Oh my goodness, my dad was so thrifty. He didn't throw out anything because it might, you know, you'd find another way. Your socks you turned inside out or you you lined your boots that were getting a bit thin, the soles with a newspaper. He had grown up so poor. They were so poor. They'd actually ended up in the workhouse 
Jesus. Um, it was something almost out of sort of Dickensian England um, because they were so poor. My father was able to take that to levels that we, uh, you know, just could, couldn't contemplate. How important was the hallway carpet in the family home? Oh. To even have carpet, because the floors were so cold, this was pre-central heating or anything like that. We lived in a very modest house, and modest carpet. But over the years, of course, with all of us um, traipsing up and down the hallway, we'd worn out the carpet. And it was threadbare. The part along the side, near the wall, either side, was almost like brand new. And um, so he suggested that we try to traverse the hallway by walking on the unworn part of the carpet. Well, we thought this was hilarious. I mean, this was the sort of thing he would come up with. But how and close could you get to the wall without toppling over? That's the well, thing. Well, that was the thing. So we used to do things like where you would walk down it like a crab, but you would, you know, flatten yourself against the wall. Yeah. Anyway, it became <laughs> this huge lark in the family because then we would all try to compete with each other to make each other laugh and find the most novel way to traverse the sort of hallway so we'd do things like leap from a doorway onto the stairs we'd leap across the hallway onto the first stair climb the banister which would take you a sort of good two-thirds up the hallway and then we would drop sort of commando style and then roll the rest of the way or and then we would do things like try and piggyback some of the younger ones so we used to think that if there were less feet on the carpet that we would reduce the wear and anyway even got to the point where one of my brothers even brought a bicycle into the house and we would just push it was like a, an, an Axminster bike lane up against the wall and so we'd load up with all all these children on this bike just push it along the wall you know and then we'd fall around laughing our dog used to bark with excitement anyway we'd all fall around laughing it amused us for years and years and even when the sort of siblings were having my brothers and sisters were having children of their own and yeah, there was lots of little children in the house they thought it was hilarious they carried on this tradition just to tease my father who was now quite old but to tease him and and so I've carried many a little baby up like a koala with a little baby on my back and crawled up the hallway and, and they just thought that that was normal. That's how people walked up hallways. So when you were a teenager, the whole family decided to migrate to Australia on a ship to come to the promised land, so to speak. Did yeah. they know anyone here in Australia? No, we didn't know anyone. We were we were ten pound poms. So part of the deal was that you um you know, you paid £10, the affair was subsidised by the uh, governments and um, you were sort of had to go where you were sent. So the, we didn't know anyone and Dad didn't have any, there wasn't any work, but we knew that would, he would find work, but you had to sort of go and sort of fill up the towns or cities where the Australian government wanted you to go. I can remember us all traipsing up to Australia House in London to, to be checked out, to make sure we passed muster, to, to be accepted to come to Australia. And I can remember us watching a sort of a cine film, you know, like one of those... Welcome to Australia. Come to Australia where the sun's shining and yeah, that's swim it, the beach. That's it. And mm. so we all thought, oh my goodness, you know, we're going to see kangaroos and we're going to see this Live in a that. bungalow in the suburbs somewhere, mow the lawn, all of that. Mm. And the fact that the sun was going to be shining was just a big attraction anyway so between sort of getting passed for accepted and actually getting passage on a ship 
was probably about six weeks wait um, because what they would do, they would just get in contact. You, a telegram would come and tell you that there was a, a, a passage on some ship. They used to fill up ships. And so if they had any spare berths, they would fill them up with these migrants, British migrants, to send them to Australia. So what was the reality like when you arrived in South Australia, which was your destination at the other end? We knew before we left that we were going to Adelaide, but um, we didn't know anything else apart from that. We didn't know an address in Adelaide or, or what lay ahead. And when we embarked on the ship, we were sort of called together sort of an, as a huge group with this sort of megaphone and told all of those who were going to Adelaide, we, we were given a pink enamel badge that we pinned to our lapels for the whole journey. And I can remember being so scared. I kept looking at everybody's lapel to see who else was going where we were going. But also I was worried because if any of us got separated or one of the, my brothers take off his badge and just throw it aside or something and we'd get lost and we wouldn't be able to tell anyone where we were going. So it was all a bit, I found it rather stressful. But um, that's, that's how we knew where we were going. So our ship, when it sailed, it, it first port of call in Australia was Fremantle and lots of people disembarked then. And but because it was such a large ship, it couldn't go into the harbour at Adelaide. So we had to go past Adelaide and go to Melbourne and disembark there. We had perhaps half a day in Melbourne. We just had to hang around and get on the overland train that uh, in that tea time, we got on the overland train to head to Adelaide. It was an overnight journey. Do you remember that overnight journey? It was all exciting but scary. Uh, we were tired. We didn't really know what lay ahead, but we were together and we were all right. And when, so we got on this train. Uh, we'd had a, the immigration had given us a little voucher for something at the canteen at the Flinders Street station. So we'd had a bite to eat, but we had to sit up all night on the train it wasn't a sleeper or anything and and I think probably mum had a, a sandwich or something in her bag for us all but we just sat up through this night and and of course I suppose um, we just weren't used to such vast journeys through the night with no lights and no towns and cities and villages to pass it was just um, and then when it was morning, we pulled into Talem Bend, which is right on the sort of almost the border of South Australia and Victoria. And again, just look, I can remember the station. It was just, it was nothing there. And there was just this young woman, very young, standing on the station holding her very young baby. The baby looked so it might only be a month old and and she was waiting to board this train and I remember a little modest suitcase and um and she was just standing there alone and we just poured into the station and and she boarded she got into our carriage and I suppose mum you know being a mother of so many children and all us children she sort of encouraged her to come and sit with us and um and sit next to mum because she had this young baby and mum thought you know she might be able to help her or look after the baby for us so that she could rest and, uh, and so we all sort of on these bench seats looking at this young woman with her baby and anyway the train left again she was the only one that got on and nobody got off and as the journey began you know we were sitting listening and 
mum was asking her story. And, of course, the Vietnam War was on at that time. Australia was in the Vietnam War. And she shared with mum that she had received a telegram only a week before to say that her young husband had been killed in Vietnam and he had never seen the baby. He, he I don't think he'd even... If I recall rightly, I don't think he'd even known he was going to be a father. And I suppose for my mother, who'd gone through World War II and they have lost so many family members, her heart went out to this young woman and she looked after her the whole journey. And and then when we got to Adelaide and, you know, we pulled into Adelaide Station and all the commotion of getting off and getting out, getting sorted, this young woman disappeared. But, you know, probably there was someone there to meet her. I, I, I recall she was going home, home to her family. And it was seen to this day, I wonder what became of her. And I wonder where that child is. They, they'd probably be a grandparent themselves now, but where are they? And I, I hope they fared well. So you and your family settled in Adelaide and you went through school and eventually studied social work. Why did you want to become a social worker, Gillian? I think it was that uh, a sense of a connection with people, understanding and having a good understanding of the trials and tribulations of life and the challenges and that any of us could find ourselves in such difficult times and the need to support people and we'd experienced some trials in our own lives as a family and our extended family that sense almost also of a social justice sense of it all that um, sometimes we just need to help each other and so to me sort of being drawn to a helping profession. So you worked with new migrant families from all over the world. What kind of social work was this? Well, it wasn't so much working with immigrants, but refugee families. Uh, so I actually worked with some of the very first boat people that came to Australia from the Vietnam War. And then the waves of uh, refugees because of turmoil in our world that I have worked with, you know, then it was following on from the Vietnam War, was the Cambodian families that were coming out from the killing fields, you know, after the Pol Pot regime and what they had done to their peoples. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. We were talking before, Julian, about your work as a social worker, which you did for many years before you took up this baking business of yours. And you were often working with migrant families who were adjusting to life in Australia. Now, in the early 80s, you met a family who had come to Australia from Czechoslovakia. And this is communist Czechoslovakia when it was very, very difficult to escape. What did they tell you about how they got to Australia from communist Czechoslovakia? So this was in the early sort of 80s, uh, Richard, and the secret police were active, very active in Czechoslovakia, a very, very oppressive regime. And 
The family actually lived in Bratislava, so they were in the Slovakian part of Czechoslovakia, and they had decided that they wanted to escape, but they weren't allowed to leave the country. But they couldn't tell anybody. They couldn't tell family or friends. They, had to, they could give no indication that they were going to leave. They just had to walk out of their homes, walk out of their lives. But you couldn't walk out, could you? That was the thing. You'd get caught and shot or not arrested. Mm. So how did they get out? Well, because they would get shot if they tried to cross the border, they had concocted a scheme where they would escape at night in a hot air balloon. Good God. Yes. <laughs> and so they had arranged uh, for this hot air balloon. And, and of course, they would just get the burner to get themselves up to a certain height and it all had to be done on certain nights when the wind was blowing in the direction that would blow take them over the german border so they had to wait and it was like it was like an underground that was helping families escape if it had been seen by the border guards it would have been shot out of the sky yes and just the fear of are we going to make it and will your child start crying or will will somebody give you away? Will somebody shout, there's somebody up there? You know, it, it rings a lump to my throat even thinking about it now, what they endured. But they... But they made it. They they drifted over into Germany. And then once they were in Germany, they were safe, of course, and, and able to get to a refugee camp and get the help that they needed. But that was how they'd escaped. And nobody knew they'd gone. And how were they coping now that they'd arrived in Australia, being cut off from their families like that? Well, when they first arrived, you know, they were very stoic people, very strong people. And they had two little children. The little girl was probably about 18 months old and a little boy who would have been about three and a half. But within weeks, Eleanor, the the wife, had started to get very distressed and depressed. And she was deeply, deeply sad that she had gone and she had not told her mother or her sister. She couldn't tell anybody. She was doing it as much for their safety as as their, her own. But this sense of guilt, she knew that they, they would be worrying what had become of them. Had they been taken to prison? Had they been shot? What had become of them? That she, she knew that they would be worried, they would be interrogated back home. Uh, her sense of what she perhaps had inflicted on her family back home in Slovakia, that she began to get her down terribly. So what did you think when you heard this? Well, I, I, I was concerned about her, you know, her mental health. She, she was really starting to get deeply depressed and there was no going back they couldn't go back it was it was the end of their lives their their, their connections there but as they come to know the family more i i just thought it always used to strike me how much freedom we have here and how we're so lucky and free to travel and free to be who we want to be and i just thought to myself there's there's something i can do for this family i I can take a message. I can take a message to their family to let them know that they are safe and well and where they actually are in the world. And 
I could do that. This is something I could do for this family to help this woman. And what did they say when you put that idea to, to Well, I, at first I think they were sort of shocked and a bit wary and could I really be saying what I was going to say, doing? But to me, it's, in my mind, it seems so simple in a way. But how would you pass on that message? Because I'm assuming you don't speak Slovak. And- uh, yes, and I, I remember asking them, do, you know, write me a message, write me a letter or something or, or teach me some words. No, no. They said, oh my goodness, no, Jillian, you know, you must know nothing. You know, you can't be caught with anything on you. And they were petrified because, you know, I was, you know, they probably thought she's so naive. She's never grown up in a country where there's this level of police state and oppression she doesn't understand but so no they wouldn't give me anything so where were these um, relatives where were you where were you to go to them what what would worked out that i would find her sister her sister and her sister's husband worked in a sort of like a hotel some come ski resort up in the mountains in bratislava above bratislava and that's where they worked, and I would try to make my way there. The plan was for you just to front up and somehow make this story known to them somehow. Yes. Um, and I, I just, you know, I just know, uh, having worked with families uh, from all over the world, you know, this we have so much more in common than we have as differences. And as humans, we all find a way to reach out to each other. Gillian, this is a this is an incredibly kind thing you're about to embark on, but it's a very dangerous game though at the same time. Were you frightened? Well, no, I wasn't frightened. I wasn't frightened. I felt it was almost uh, the least I could do was one human to another. I, I just felt it was in my power to do it. Yes, I had to be sort of sensible about it and cautious and wary, but but it was something I could do. So once you enter the country, Mm. You're put under close observation. Oh, gosh, yes. So what happened once you got in? Well, I came by train and from uh, Germany into Czechoslovakia. And so I, my sort of first got off the train in Prague because I could only get that far uh, before I then had to sort of, if I wanted to go anywhere else, I would go to the state tourist bureau in Prague because it was, there's only one travel agency. It's owned by the government because it controls where your movements are. And what did Prague look like in those days? I remember how it looked myself, but what what, what are your memories of Prague in the late communist era? Oh my, it was magical, Richard, absolutely magical because there was no advertising, no billboards, there were no Western products. So I felt like I'd stepped back in the into the 15th century, this beautiful architecture, the colours of the buildings. I felt like I'd stepped straight into a sort of fairy tale book of an ancient city uh, with cobbled streets and and the, even the clocks in the squares, and I really sensed amongst the peoples a sense of oppression. And of course, the secret police were very active, people being spied on all the time. So people were cautious and wary of strangers. And, and of course, what I was wearing and how I was presenting, I was obviously a foreigner. So I just made my way to the State Tourist Bureau and try and to say I wanted to travel to this ski resort. Ski lodge? But did you ski? Ski lodge? No. I've never skied in my life, Richard. You didn't have I any didn't ski ha- gear? I didn't have you? any ski gear. Uh, 
there were faults in my plan. I don't think <laughs> I don't think I would have got a job with MI5 or ATO. <laughs> there were definitely, you know, definitely holes in my plan. Anyway, the state tourist bureau said, no, no, you're not allowed to go there. You, you can go here and you can go here. And I sort of said, oh, no, no. oh, I'd re- but I really got my heart set on going here. No, no, you're not, they wouldn't have any of that. So I just thought, well, I'll just buy a train ticket from Prague to Bratislava along the route that I want to go. And I'll just get off at the station, the nearest station to this place, the village at the sort of foot of the hills, mountains, and I will make my way. I'll just wing it from there so that was my plan you know I can remember looking out you know at the train station names and not trying to draw too much attention because there were guards always on the trains with guns and um, and of course they were all keeping their eye on me because I was a westerner anyway I got off at the station it was a tiny little place and unbeknownst to me it was also a site for a Russian army base. And, of course, I didn't know. So I was walking, you know, it was ridiculous. And anyway, I got to this sort of where the ski lift was. I needed to get up the mountain along the ski lift. And, you know, I just went there. And so I have no ski gear. I just have my backpack. And, of course, all the locals skied and and they're all there and they've all got skis and ski and they're all looking at me and I'm thinking oh my goodness and then a storm came up blizzard bit of a blizzard and the ski lift was shut for hours and they all departed and went either back to their hotels or their houses because it didn't make sense but I was just sort of found the nearest bus shelter and sort of sat there in this blizzard waiting and I just thought now what what if this storm doesn't pass and the ski lift doesn't open again I again hadn't thought that one through very well but I thought should I just get back on the train and I thought no I've come all this way I can't go back I can't I can't go back and say I failed at the final hurdle so I still you are in a blizzard in a bus stop in Slovakia with, with not a huge amount of language skills to operate no with. and the idea was that I would get back on that train before nightfall because I had nowhere to stay because if you stayed anywhere you had to show your papers so if I just turned up at a hotel and they would ask for my papers and of course they would have to ring someone and sort of dog me in. So Gillian, you were this close to freezing to death Fre- or freezing being to arrested death. by the secret police. Yes. So what did you do? Well, I waited and, you know, I just hoped for the best. I'm an optimist by nature, if you can't tell. I could put personally my optimism flagging in a moment like that, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I, wa- I was bitterly cold. I was hungry. I was trying not to make draw too much attention to myself. So then the, uh, the storm cleared, the ski lift opened and people started to come back. And anyway, so then I'm on the ski lift going up this mountain. And then, of course, when you get to the end of the ski lift, you get off and you've either got your snowshoes on or your skis and you ski off, but not me. I've got, <laughs> I just sort of was wading through the snow up to almost my thigh deep, uh, way down by this backpack, trudging through the snow to make my way to this sort of hotel. And it was sort of almost in the middle of nowhere. I just sort of came in, I can still see it now, into a very modestly, it was a tiny little place, very small, and sort of just kicked off the snow off my boots. And I had a jacket on, and the only thing that I had 
brought from Australia was a little badge, uh, a little enameled badge of an Australian flag. And I had that pinned on the inside of my lapel because I thought if I could show them that, you know, I wanted to indicate what country I'd come from and, and also to be able to tell them that's where their family had ended up. And so this young woman, receptionist, sort of came and she sort of looked at me and she well, she, of course she wasn't expecting anyone because she would know about it, you know. People didn't move freely without the authorities giving you papers and so on or notifying hotels. So she looked at me very oddly, like, as though, what, what, who are you, why are you here? And so I, I just knew the name of the brother-in-law, you know, and I just said his name. And she just looked at me again and I said his name again. And I sort of opened my lapel and just sort of pointed at the badge. Anyway, she quickly disappeared out the back and I reappeared with this sort of middle-aged man. And I said his name and he looked at me and I said their name, the, the family in Australia, and showed him this badge. Anyway, he whipped me into the back. And there was the sister, I met the sister, and anyway, tears all round, and next thing, of course, the tea's made, and the cakes are out, and we're sitting down and, you know, trying as best we're able to communicate, uh, but I was able to tell them that they had arrived safely in Australia, they were well, they had a home, and, and to bring news of them, and to answer their questions, and to reconnect this family. How did they react to this news? Oh, it's just hard to put into words that human emotion of, I mean, I think they were shocked that, you know, this stranger had suddenly appeared on this day to bring this news halfway around the world. They might have resented the family too, because I know, I know the way the system worked Mm. there. It would have meant that they would have suffered. They would have have been accused of being anti-party. They would have accused of having a role in the disappearance. They would have been, there would have been a cloud over the family name. So they might have had mixed feelings about this. Yes, they, they certainly were. And that was part of why, um, families sort of couldn't tell it it was almost like they didn't tell anything to their families so that when they were interrogated they had nothing that they don't know know anything Mm. and of course everything in the home is confiscated and it you know, it's taken away or houses were even burned. You know, it was a way of punishing and sending a message to others. But uh, no, this family, well, they they didn't react. Like they, they were just the relief and the, if anybody has had somebody go missing in their lives or they've lost someone, then just to know where they are, just to know, to have some of those questions laid to rest uh, brings a great comfort and uh, to soothe I felt that I I had been able to do that for this family it was in on my part I felt it was a very small gesture on my part and of course you know the the sister and brother-in-law had given me all sorts of gifts to take back to them I thought oh my god you don't realize how much I've got to carry because I had to carry on the journey as though I was a tourist so you know they're giving me like family albums and books and things and I, and I thought yeah, I've got to go back through that snow 
and I've got no skis. skis on. I'm going to sink even further. <laughs> and plus, I've got a bit of a journey yet to go and carry all this stuff. It could have weighed you down into a snowdrift <laughs> yes, and no one would ever have exactly. seen you again. I felt like I was going to <laughs> disappear completely in a depth of, in a snow flood. But anyway, I eventually obviously made it back to Australia and met with the family and able to, you know, I went to their home and gave them these gifts and and we just sat around for hours and I was able to tell them how they were how what was happening in their family how well they were and what had happened I was able to share the refugee family story with their family about what had happened that night where they had gone I just hoped that the day would come when freedom would come that they could reunite themselves as a family and visit each other. But in the 80s, that that was what I could do for that family. So in the interim, you then settled down, you had your own family and then went into this life of fabulous baking. Yes, well, the baking, you know, I'd always been able to bake since I was a child. And, you know, through school, doing jobs on the weekend or after school or school holidays, and then through uni, baking or cooking, could all, I could always turn my hand to that. And I was a great traveller when I was young. So it was a way of getting work to earn a plane ticket or a meal. I didn't need necessarily the language and I certainly didn't need a professional registration and it was almost universal cooking. So it was something that I did and I loved doing. And and of course, back then, people would, if they wanted cakes made, they usually, special occasion cakes, this is, they would usually just ask, does anyone know a cake maker? So it was often just word of mouth and it just grew from there. I, you know, I hadn't set out to be a sort of a wedding cake maker, but it was because it was a cake that was made for a special occasion. So people would ask me, and then it sort of grew from there. But for years ago, before sort of the internet and before social media, you just made wedding cakes for people in your sort of geographical area. But as social media, as we, you know, globalization of social media emerged, so people started to connect with people across the world. And I used to get asked by Americans, it was Americans first that used to ask me, contact me and say, would I ship cakes to them? And I used to think I didn't even know what they were talking about shipping. I didn't realize they meant that as posting. And I, but it seemed to me madness to think that people would post food like that, uh, a wedding cake, or even assume you could do that. I would have sleepless nights worrying about it. I'd seen my postie chuck my parcel over the fence. So, I mean, well, how was this wedding cake going to turn off in the States? I mean, it's just madness. I just thought, as Americans, do they actually know where Australia is and how far this cake would have to travel? No, and, and how fragile cakes are and how much work goes into making them special. To have something sloshed up against the wall of a cardboard box, smear, a smear of a cake rather than exactly, a cake, really. Exactly. And it was just madness. But anyway. So send the cake maker rather than the cake. That makes a lot well, of sense. Yeah. But then can you go over there, what do you do? Do you pack a Mixmaster into your backpack this time around or what do you do once you get there with your gear? Well, no, I travel very light. 
there's a few sort of scraps of clothing, but it's mainly a, a few sort of tools, my trusty hand whisk. But um, no, nothing he- really heavy. I, you know, there's only so much luggage you can take on an aeroplane. So is it a bit like the raspberries when you get there? Do you sort of have to just yes. trust in Providence in a way and yes. find someone who do- does have a mix master and someone who does have That's raspberries? That's what I do. I ask. I just ask and borrow. I'll take my whisk and I'll take some cake tins. I'll take some cake tins. Only because I might not be able to find the sort of dimensions and a good, you know, the, a good one that I need in the time that I've got available. But, but in terms of mixers and bowls and um, spoons, anything else I need, and ovens and kitchens, I just ask people, and people are marvelous. If I, I they just let me into their homes and let me use their kitchens or, or the people I'm making the cake for sort of put me up or whatever. So I've cooked in all sorts of ovens and all sorts of kitchens around the world, but that's what I do. And the most important thing is to sort of source those wonderful ingredients that, that will tell the story of this cake. We were talking earlier about how we associate that wonderful aroma of baking with childhood. Mm and how that sort of bakes itself into our minds, I suppose, in a funny sort of way. Then there's Christmas cake. Christmas cake's kind of important. Mm -hmm. What's your earliest baking memory with your mum when it comes to making the Christmas cake? Really, that was probably the only cake that I can ever remember my mum making every year. We always made our own cakes and puddings and pies, Christmas uh, mince pies. My mother's birthday was on Christmas Eve, so it was very special day in the house and it was always cold and that sort of smell of the baking of Christmas, the smells of oranges and dates and fruits and uh, spices and that warmth and it was on Christmas Eve when when everyone had gone to bed and I can remember the fires were lit, the lights were low and The house was in darkness except this warm little lit place, which was our very, very modest kitchen. And and it was a really special time because I was the one that was interested in baking. It would be just me up and all my brothers and sisters had gone to bed. So it was just me and mum. It was so rare, just one child with her. And so we would decorate the Christmas cake together. And I can remember the smell of it, the sound of it being unwrapped from its wax paper and the smell of it. And we would make a very traditional sort of royal icing and uh, put the marzipan on the cake first and then a traditional royal icing. Every year, it was always decorated the same. Then there was a little old tin that was up on top of the cupboards that you would climb up and get down. And inside that tin was this little sort of manky little bottle brush tree and a... And a little sort of, I think it was sort of made of chalk or something. But over the years where we'd all handled it, it would all sort of, was all worn. And uh, and then like a little snowman. And, and they were all out of proportion from each other. They, you know, it was just this, but I didn't care. It was magical. And they're long gone now. My mum's long gone. The tree and the little knobbly house and the snowman are long gone but we used to do that together and she would slather the cake with this royal icing and and then my job was to make the little footprints in the snow as though as though somebody had gone to the house and they were now inside and it, it was just magical 
to this day, that's what I do on Christmas Eve. I decorate my Christmas cake and I'm back home with her. We're together on that Christmas Eve. Years ago on this program, I interviewed a celebrity chef and he he said the most interesting thing to me. He said, fundamentally, he said, I think of myself as a servant. Mm. And I thought, oh, that's an interesting thing for this guy to say. He's kind of like a TV star and he's making a ton of money and he has this kind of glamorous life. But fundamentally, he said, and he wasn't, it wasn't false modesty either. He said, as a cook, as a chef, I see myself as a servant. And I thought about that for a long while afterwards. I thought maybe people who have the happiest jobs are those who see themselves as those who deliver services for other people. Is that how you see yourself as a servant in a funny sort of way? Yes, I do. I, I do. I, I can understand that. It's a sense of giving. It's like, There's something I can do, something I can do that's inside of me, it's with my hands, simple things, creating food, creating a cake, they're sometimes the most powerful things and they speak of love and they speak of care. Oh, it's been brilliant speaking with you, Gillian. I've so enjoyed this. Thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. I've enjoyed it too. been listening to a podcast of conversations with Richard Feidler. For more conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.